Thank you, Marge. <clears throat> I think we would do well to just listen to what she just said and go ahead, go on home. I think that, uh, that might have been good enough. <clears throat> well, since Easter, we've been looking at passages from the Apostles' letters that tell us a little bit about what our life together as Christians, as a church, ought to be like. And this series has coincided with our practice of taking communion each week for the season of Easter, and that hasn't been an accident. Our hope is that the Holy Spirit would grant Calvary a deeper fellowship, a deeper koinonia that Clayton talked about last week. And I think our hope is that part of that will be the next stage in our hospitality practice, which will begin in July, which is having other folks from Calvary over for dinner. And I know I'm very personally excited for that stage, and I hope that you are as well. But we're talking about needs and uh, uh, our needs being fulfilled and satisfied today. And it was interesting to me that, uh, you know, a lot of the songs we sang at the beginning, I think especially that last one, Sing to the King, Jesus is our every need, or he is all that we need. And that's kind of the, the whole point. So again, I guess we could probably just be done at that. But they pay me for something, so I'm going to go ahead and preach a sermon. One of the pressing challenges of the life of any church, both in the ancient world and still today, is that we each have needs. And I have a story that occurred to me about this, that during my time in China, I lived for China in two years, for two years, and it turns out that for the most part, I mean, it's a big country, so I can't speak for all of them, but all of the Chinese people that I personally met while I was there, they don't eat cheese. It's something that is very foreign to them and that they think is gross, <clears throat> which, you know, it is rotten milk rind, so I mean, there is an aspect of that that I understand, but they really don't eat it, and so you couldn't buy it in any of the stores. Chinese food doesn't use cheese in it. So the way that I got my cheese fix, and the other Americans got our cheese fixes, is that we would go and eat pizza, and you know, there were lots of pizza places around. Um, it's interesting, Pizza Hut is, uh, <laughs> Americans were the only people who would actually order pizza at Pizza Hut, because Pizza Hut in China is this very hoity-toity, like people dress up, it's really weird, it's like some strange dream, <laughs> you know, waiters and tuxedos, you can, you can order a billion other things besides pizza, anyway. It's just a lovely, a lovely country. Um, it is, it is. <clears throat> Many of you have met my friend Tony. He was here for a little while around Christmas. He came to faith uh, shortly before Thanksgiving back in 2015, and, and probably a third of the meals that Tony and I shared were pizza. So you can imagine my surprise when, when he was visiting last Christmas, I suggested that we all go out for pizza, and he flatly rejected that idea. I said, well, Tony, you love pizza. <laughs> and he shook his head and said, the truth is, Ben, I hate it. <laughs> I was deeply puzzled. What's not to like, Tony? Cardboard bread covered in ketchup and rotten milk rind? Come on. <clears throat> so why, I ask my very Christ-like friend, why did you eat it so often in China? His response, this is his literal response, <laughs> I bore the burden because I knew that you liked it. What a good and Christ-like friend. <laughs> it turns out that we have different needs, and that each of us have different needs. We don't all like pizza. 
And churches, as we know, have been destroyed over unmet needs. And many of the conflicts that churches undergo are because needs are either not being met or not being met in the way that people want them to be. How are we to learn the ways of Christ and witness to the good news in the midst of unmet expectations and needs? I think part of an answer to that comes from our passage this morning, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul wrote this letter from prison. And the Philippian church, from different clues in the text, seems like they were having some kind of significant conflict. But despite those things, this is Paul's cheeriest letter. He talks about joy throughout the letter. He seems to be very pleased with the Philippian church. They were doing a lot of things right. But they still had not arrived, which is why he wrote them a letter. They were not yet done learning from Jesus, and neither are we. Paul urged the Philippians to adopt the mind of Christ and laid down their lives for one another. They had to stick together and follow their humble and self-sacrificing Lord, who gave up the privileges of his divinity and humbled himself all the way down to the horrifying death of crucifixion so that his people would have eternal life. I think here's another way to summarize the passage, and it's my single-sentence sermon summary. Paul wants us to treat one another as if Jesus were real to treat one another as if Jesus were real. And I'm obviously not suggesting that Jesus is made up. Those of us who have been in the Speaking of Jesus Sunday School the last couple months will probably recognize that phrase just because it's been one that I've been thinking about for my own life a lot because it's just a different way to kind of frame the question. If Jesus was real, how should I spend my time? How should I spend my money? If Jesus was real, what really matters in life? And I think that's Paul's point. If Jesus really died really rose again, and really is in control of all things, how ought we treat one another in the midst of disagreement? And we'll take the passage backwards. So we'll start with verses 6 through 11 and try and understand a little bit. We can really only brush the surface of what happened, of what Jesus did for us. We'll look at verses 3 through 5 and what our obedience looks like. I'll have another story to share. And finally, we'll make it to the top and ask, what is at stake? Whether or not we treat one another as if Jesus were real. And we see in this passage that Paul roots his instructions for the Philippians in the gospel itself, which is what we find in verses 6 through 11. A poem in most of your Bibles, uh, I imagine the lines change, and rather than just a straight column, it's kind of a, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it looks different from the rest of the text around Philippians because it's a poem that perhaps Paul wrote himself or perhaps was a hymn in use in the church at the time that he quoted, we, we don't know. But there is a lot to unpack. This is a very, very dense uh, statement. And really, each line as you go down heightens the glorious intensity of what God has done for us in Jesus and really what has happened to Jesus because of that. So we see, verse 6, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What Paul means by Jesus being in the very form of God, and hopefully this isn't uh, news to you, but that Jesus reveals the nature of God. He reveals the nature of God to be love, of seeking the highest good of the other person. That's what God is The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in an eternal relationship of mutual love and self-sacrifice. 
They were like that before the universe existed, or he was like that before the universe existed. They still will be when humanity is no longer sinful. That self-sacrificing nature of God didn't come about as a response to our sin. That's just what he's like. But we see that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that word grasped is one of those kind of tricky parts of the Bible where it really could be translated a couple of different ways. And the sense really is he did not consider it something to be held on to or clung to or something to be used as a tool for his own advantage. Imagine, this might be a dangerous question, but imagine for a moment all that you would do if you were God. The stuff that you'd have, the people that you'd punish, the ways that you change the world. Jesus had that power. He didn't use it to his own advantage. Having the very form of God actually prompted him to let go of it, to release his equality with God. Jesus tells us that God is love, is self-giving relationship. But we are just at the beginning of the passage. We have not yet reached the height of the gospel. Verse 7 says, But Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. We believe that Jesus was fully human and fully God, and that's part of the creed that we read this morning. That's a deep mystery. We don't fully understand what it means. We do know that it doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't God. When Paul says that he emptied himself, he doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God. He didn't lose his divinity and yet, still, he emptied himself. Well, what exactly does that mean? And I think, as I was thinking about it, I think that a Jesus who kept a hold of his divine status, who grasped it, who wouldn't let it go, probably would have acted a lot more like a superhero. Many of us have seen the Marvel movies or are aware of them. We know what those people are like. They're good people, you know, but they f- fly around and do their thing. And maybe if you're like me, as you've grown up with the stories of Jesus, you've asked questions like, why didn't Jesus just heal everyone immediately? Why did he wait to have to actually be in front of them or be close to them? Why didn't he fly to these other continents and preach the good news? Why was it just this one little strip of the Mediterranean? He had the power, didn't he? Yes. But he gave up the authority to do whatever he wanted. Jesus said repeatedly, We saw this in the responsive reading from John chapter 15. He says repeatedly that he only does what he sees the Father doing. He only does what the Father has told him to do. For all we know, maybe Jesus did want to teleport to ancient China or America and tell them the good news, but he didn't because that was not the Father's plan for that time. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus became a man to share in our plight to demonstrate an obedient life, but we still have not reached the height of the gospel. Because, as Paul marveled in verse 8, Jesus the Messiah not only humbled himself as a human and servant of God, he obeyed the will of the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's good for us to remember that for ancient people, the pain, we usually think of the pain, the physical pain, and it was Incredible. I mean, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. It was painful. But for ancient people, the physical pain was not the worst part. The worst part was the shame and the humiliation, the being cut off from your people. And Jesus says that on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus died a painful, humiliating, horrifying death. The cross represents the very worst of human and demonic evil. It is death, ultimate exile from the presence of God. And there's really no sugarcoating Jesus' death on the cross. There's no way to take the edge off that also does not compromise the gospel in some way. Early Christian heretics claimed that Jesus only appeared to be crucified. It was kind of like an illusion or a hologram. Muslims to this day will claim that someone else was actually crucified in Jesus' place. There was a swap there right at the end. Both of these errors are in part a response to the huge paradox between the horror of crucifixion and Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity. How could God be treated like that? Even death on a cross. The answer is that Jesus did this, he subjected himself to this, principally because the Father asked him to, but so that his people would be saved for his friends. On our own, none of us can escape the destruction of sin and death. If you think you can, you have another thing coming. You cannot escape on your own. Because the Trinitarian God is love, Jesus came to save us. Bearing the pain and humiliation and penalty of our sin, he did this willingly because there was no other way for men and women to be saved. But even with our own salvation, we have not actually reached the height of the gospel. And we see the peak and the highest point at the end of this passage in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The good news is that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, the man who humbled himself, put his needs over his own, or excuse me, put our needs over his own, and died on our behalf, that is the guy in charge of everything. The universe is not blind to our struggles. It is not just some machine that chews us up and spits us out. We don't have to convince God or talk him into helping us. Jesus, kind, patient, generous Jesus, is the one on the throne. He is the guarantee that we all have access. Those of us who have faith in him have full access to the presence of God. We're in and the promise implicit in Paul's words is that, we must, that just as we must follow Jesus into suffering and death, so we will also be raised to new life and exaltation with him in the future that God is preparing for us. So I said that there's a lot to unpack, and that really is just glancing off the surface of those verses, but we do need to move on. Paul quotes this hymn as an example to the church, right? He's just saying, this is what I mean. It's not even his main point in the passage. His main point is a few verses before it, to treat one another like Jesus has treated you, even to the point of death. In light of the immensity and beauty of what Jesus has done, how ought we treat one another? And we find the answer in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
And a few weeks ago, something happened during service that I think illustrates what Paul is trying to say. And you may have noticed during communion that I kind of scan the room, and I try not to stare at any of you in particular. I know occasionally one of you makes eye contact with me. I don't mind. Hopefully you don't mind. But the Holy Spirit occasionally brings something to my attention he did a few weeks ago. The names of the individuals have been changed for my protection. We'll go ahead and call them Bert and Sally. Now, due to a mistake of mine, we had prepared less grape juice for communion that morning than we should have. And so the tray was empty by the time it got to Bert. There was no more juice. But Bert didn't complain. He didn't make a scene. He didn't try and take somebody else's juice. Instead, he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and was content to go without. I think most of us who have grown up in the church are familiar with Bert's story, right? We know that sometimes, as part of a congregation, we have to go without the thing that we need, without bitterness or complaint. But I think that for many of us, we worry that we'll always have to be like Bert. We will always have to be the one who goes without, unless we make sure our own needs are met. This makes us anxious and causes us to treat one another as if Jesus is not real, as if everything that Paul just said in verses 6 through through 11 is a lie. We do complain. We do take. We do harbor bitterness. And now you you might rightly object, but we can't all be Bert's, Ben. If the whole church is Bert's, then we'll all get burned out and nobody's needs will be met. And that's true. That would be true if Bert was alone in the room and there was no one else to help him. That would be true if there was no more to go around, no more juice to go around, that was it, and he didn't get any. That was not the case because there was more available for Bert's need. He just didn't know it. Bert got grape juice. He received the whole of communion without moving or saying a word. How? No angels appeared. Jesus didn't turn any water into wine. Nothing spectacular happened. Bert's need was filled because behind him, or sitting in the pew behind him, was Sally. And Sally noticed Bert's need. Sally could have done nothing. Like, well, that's too bad. He doesn't get any grape juice. She could have given Bert her own grape juice, but that really would have just kicked the can up the road because now Sally turns into Bert. Where's her grape juice? She needs communion just as much as Bert. Instead, Sally looked not only to her own interests, but also to the interests of Bert. And I watched Sally reach over the pew as far as she possibly could to get one of the usher's attention, and Bert got his grape juice. In the life of our church, every Bert needs a Sally, and Sally's need to pay attention to the Bert's. We need to release our own needs and expectations and take care of one another. And I say that as somebody who regularly fails to be a Sally. I was not a good Sally to Tony, dragging him to all those pizza joints without ever thinking if he liked it. It's a pattern in my life. It keeps happening. There's another story. I didn't ask him if I could share it, but I'm going to anyway. So something happened between Pastor Clayton and I about a year ago. So uh, I really enjoy Palestinian food, and it's okay if you don't know what that is, shish kebabs and you know things like that. There's a restaurant over in Peoria. I love to go, and because I'm a kind and generous-hearted person, I like to share the things I love with other people that I love. And so Clayton and I went once back in 2016, and we had a great time, I thought. 
We went again after I got home from China. Again, wonderful time, lamb shanks, rice, hummus, the whole nine yards. Then last year, on my birthday, which is June 19th, in case you're worried you missed it, Clayton asked me where I wanted to go eat lunch, and I said with, with full delight in the Lord, how about the Palestinian restaurant? And Clayton nearly crashed the car. No! He screamed. He shouted at me, no! I wasn't a very good Sally. Turns out Clayton wasn't a very good Bert. In our life as a church, during service on Sunday morning, in our relationships with one another, when we serve in different ministries, there's really one question that we should ask. Is this a Bert situation where I need to give up a need of mine, or is this a Sally situation where I'm in a position to help someone's need get filled? And both are ways of being like Jesus. Shall I be like Jesus and empty myself, or shall I be like Jesus and look not only to my own interests? Those are the options. The question, how do I make sure that I get what I need, isn't part of the picture. If Sally focused on, if all that Sally was focused on was whether or not she got her own grape juice, then she wouldn't have noticed Bert. Or she would have ignored it because she wanted to make sure she could keep hers. Instead, Sally treated Bert as if there were more than one cup of juice. And in the same way, church, we can treat one another as if Jesus is real and if, as if his benefits to us are real. Jesus is the fulfillment of our needs, and he has placed us in one another's lives as part of that, to fill one another's needs, so that each of us would be a Bert when we need to be, and that we would be a Sally when we need to be. In prayer, in service, in the sharing of our spiritual gifts, we meet one another's needs, not necessarily by giving up a need of our own. Again, Sally didn't give Bert her grape juice, and she was right not to do so. Paul doesn't tell us to ignore our own needs, but to look after our own needs and the needs of others. We don't have to give up our need to fill another's because there are more resources available than we can immediately see in the Lord. The checks we write, so to speak, are backed by heaven's treasuries, not our own limited accounts. We are free to be generous, to treat one another as if Jesus is real, and not worry about whether we're going to get the thing we need or not. A practical way this can play out is inviting one another over for dinner. When I have people over, generally, I don't cook food for them and then not eat myself. That would be very strange. Or invite them over to my house so they can watch me eat the food I ate my made without giving them any. Sharing a meal with someone is a way to look after not only your own interests, but the interests of the other as well. And I want to conclude by focusing on the phrase in verse 2 that Paul uses, complete my joy, or in other translations, make my joy complete. I think Paul uses the phrase very intentionally here, and it has an, that phrase has an interesting history in scripture that we don't really have time to get into this morning. But I think he uses it here because he wants us to grapple with what's at stake in treating each other as if Jesus were real. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says that he has learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances, but he doesn't actually say what it is. And we may be tempted to think, well, it's getting whatever we want. That's the secret to contentment. But that's not the case, as the story of Jesus shows us. 
he had to experience suffering, humiliation, and death in order to arrive at joy. We sang joyful, joyful this morning. You want joy, I assume you do. You want it completely? Then treat each other as Jesus did. Sometimes that means emptying yourself, and sometimes that means looking to the other's interests along with your own. If Jesus is real, if the story is real, then we don't have to worry so much about our own needs because we are part of a church and we do take care of each other. But let us continue to press on to what God has called us to in Jesus. As C.S. Lewis writes, we can be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. Paul's the one who wrote those words in Philippians 2, but I think it's coming from Jesus' heart. Make my joy complete, Calvary. Make your own joy complete. Church, may we please the Lord and continue to bring him joy by looking after one another and trusting Jesus to provide for our needs. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this good day. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us as we continue to learn how to follow you. And we will fail consistently, as I did with Clayton and many other times in my life. And Lord, I do thank you for the example of Sally and Bert. Lord, what a beautiful picture that was. And it was a very small thing. And Lord, so much of our lives are just actually built out of small things. I pray that we would be faithful, Lord, to look after one another's needs in small ways so that when the time comes to do it in big ways, we're prepared to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.